Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Beth Emanuel teaches Messianic Judaism for all nations, and we would like to be your long-distance congregation. If you listen regularly at BethEmmanuel.org, consider supporting us with regular financial gifts and become a virtual member. Click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org to learn more. So that's the fast of Tevet. That makes, if, if tomorrow is the 10th day of Tevet, if that's tomorrow, if that's tomorrow, that makes today the 9th of Tevet, which is, of course, as I was telling the children, the yard site of Simon Peter. And so every year, you know, I like to say a few things about that. I thought we should talk about Simon Peter today. Uh, have you ever heard of the Gospel of Peter? The Gospel of Peter, yeah. It's a second century apocryphal gospel spuriously attributed to Simon Peter. It's a strange one. Uh, it may contain some authentic traditions, but on the other hand, it's a few steps away from genuine and contains what we could call an, a heightened anti-Semitism, reflects the beginning of anti-Jewishness, not, 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 not as much as later literature, but it's like it's an in-between piece. It's in between our New Testament and, and what we would see later as, as straight-out anti-Jewish uh, church literature. Uh, it has an interesting scene. There's a famous interesting scene of, of actually seeing the resurrection when the resurrection happens and a, and a giant walking, talking cross emerges from the tomb, it's, which is the, the memorable, that's obviously not meant literally, but it's, it, it sounds literal when you're reading it, and so that makes it memorable. Um, you know, but uh, it's, we only have a fragment of it, and it's, it's like half the passion narrative, which, and, and this fragment of the Gospel of Peter was found just recently in the 19th century. I mean, we knew about the existence of this Gospel because the church writers, early church writers, talked about it, and they said, hey, this is not, you know, some said it's authentic, some said it isn't. Most said it, it is, isn't, obviously, didn't make it into the New Testament. Uh, but uh, they found the fragment of it in the 19th century, you know, where you find all the fragments of things, uh, out in the sands of Egypt. Uh, just a portion of the Gospel of Peter, a very important piece of early Christian literature, no doubt. But it's not from the hand of an apostle. Certainly not from the hand of Peter. So, it's not in the New Testament because it does not belong in the New Testament. But wouldn't it be cool if it was true? I mean, imagine discovering a parchment in the sands of Egypt, an ancient text, and finding out that this was an authentic writing of one of the apostles. Just imagine. And not just one of the apostles, not just any apostle, but the prince of the apostles, as they say, as they call him, the master's number one right-hand apostle, the apostle Peter. I mean, imagine reading Peter's own recollections of how it happened, how it went down. How cool would that be? That's what we're going to do today. <clears throat> so I'm talking about Peter today. It's my custom to bring a teaching about Peter or a teaching by Peter every year at this time. And uh, just so happens that the art site lands on Sabbath this year. That doesn't ordinarily happen. Uh, 
And uh, recently I published an article uh, and some, some writings about Peter's martyrdom in Rome, as I was telling to the children this story based on that. Uh, martyrdom under Rome, uh, under Nero, Caesar Nero, the Antichrist of that age, the first Neronian persecution, the fire of Rome, terrible massacre of the believers. Uh, so, so today I thought I would share a little secret with you. We actually do have the gospel according to Peter. And it's not a second century apocryphal gospel that's just attributed to him, attached to his name, but it's a real gospel according to Peter, and it's already in your Bible. So in honor of Shimon, Peter's, the art site, I'll tell you the authentic story of the gospel of Simon Peter. But before I do, I want you to understand why that would be a big deal, why it is a big deal. You know, of, of course, we wish we were there, don't we? The master says to his disciples, he says, Blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and kings and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and desired to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And we heard that reading from 1 John this morning during the liturgical service where John, uh, John the Apostle, the Master, says, he's, he's saying, what we have heard, he means when he says we, he means we apostles, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, the word of life, the life that was manifest as we saw and we testify and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim. That was the job of an apostle. I mean, he just gave you his job description. Remember, an apostle is someone who saw the resurrected Christ and was commissioned by the resurrected Christ to go out and to testify. What was his job? His job was to go out and say, I saw the resurrected Christ. <laughs> I saw... With my eyes, I saw the resurrected Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, rose from the dead, and I saw him, and he talked with me. That was his job. I mean, there's more to it than that. There was more to the commission, but that was essentially it. Go out and testify and transmit the story. And this is how Peter ended up in Rome in the 60s, back in the 60s. You know, if you thought the 60s were rough, John F. Kennedy and the Beatles. Should have been there in the 60s of the first century. Wow. I'm not even going to try to tell you what Simon Peter was doing in Rome in the first place. But that's a big transition from this little fishing village, growing up in a little fishing village, to the biggest cosmopolitan metropolis in the world. It's a totally different story. Whole story in itself. More than one story. But suffice to say, it had to do with the magician Simon Magus. Different story. But as long as he was in Rome, he's there in Rome, He's doing his job. What's his job? His job is testifying about the master. So he's teaching the local community of believers. We know there's a community of believers in Rome. Paul writes to them. It's called the Epistles of the Romans. Uh, so we know there's a community of believers there. Peter's teaching them. He arrives in Rome. That would have been... His arrival in Rome would have brought some glad and happy reunions, uh, some, some new introductions. He was surely pleased to reconnect with John Mark, who he knew from Jerusalem. Uh, he must have... Uh, happily made the acquaintance of Aquila and Priscilla, 
Paul knew them. You know, they were in Rome. Devout tent bakers, originally from the Jewish community of Pontus, right? Uh, the very apostolate to which Simon Peter had spent most of the, the last several years, he's like, they could talk Pontus with each other on the Black Sea there. Oh, you know so-and-so? I know so-and-so. Oh, you know so Like that. Word spreads quickly among the believers in Rome. Simon Peter has arrived. And according to the Acts of Peter, a great host of disciples gathered after the Sabbath. This is an apocryphal work, the Acts of Peter. You don't have to believe this. Okay, I'm just telling you, this is a little Christian legend here right now, okay? So, but according to the Acts of Peter, this little Christian legend, a great host of disciples gathered around Peter after the Sabbath to hear him speak. And he testified on behalf of the Master, as he always did whenever he came to a new place. So I just want you to, i just throwing that out to imagine, something like that must have happened when he arrived. Imagine what that would be like. I mean, original apostle is your special speaker at your place of worship. Wow. You know? And in those days, remember, there's no New Testament. Nobody has a New Testament. Nobody has a New Testament. So you didn't have a gospel to read about the life of the Master. Uh, if you were a disciple of Yeshua, everything you knew about Yeshua was probably third-hand, maybe fourth-hand information, probably not very accurate, actually, because uh, you had no way of knowing, no way of knowing, unless you had the opportunity to hear it from one of the eyewitnesses. So how great would that be, to have an apostle, an eyewitness? That's what the apostles were. They were the eyewitnesses, living eyewitnesses. Like living, walking, talking Gospels. Because there were no Gospels. Well, almost none. There was one. According to the Church Fathers, Matthew was the first to write a so-called Gospel. Paul, could you get me some water? Thanks. <clears throat> yeah, so, so Matthew was, uh, according to the Church Fathers, Matthew was the first to write a, a Gospel. Uh, he wrote it in Hebrew, maybe Aramaic, not sure. Hebrew or Aramaic, seems to have consisted only of a series of sayings of the Master. It's not the same as Matthew in our Bibles. It's not the same as canonical Matthew, which is a Greek gospel, written in Greek, comes much later, put together from various sources. But the original gospel of Matthew, Hebrew Matthew, was a totally different gospel, what scholars call a sayings gospel. What's a sayings gospel? It's just consisted of sayings of the Master. See, the story is Matthew was leaving his disciples behind in, in Judea as he was going out into his apostolate, and they complained, hey, you can't leave us, you're the one who tells us the sayings of the Master. So he said, well, I'll just write them down. So he took the oral tradition, it had always been an oral tradition to that point, and he wrote down the sayings of the Master, and he left that behind for his disciples to study, something for them so that they would have the sayings of the Master. Thanks. Uh, something to study in his absence. And that's the essence of discipleship. That's what discipleship is. Learning stories, traditions, anecdotes, teachings, the oral tradition, the oral teaching, and handing on. The disciples of the great rabbis and the, and the Jewish sages, that was their job, you know, memorizing their teachers' sayings and passing those words on orally. Because Judaism considered the Hebrew Bible, the, the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, what we call the Old Testament in the church, that was the scriptures. They considered the traditions of the fathers, the teachings of their rabbis, that was considered the oral law, the oral Torah, something not to be committed to writing, something that was only passed on orally from teacher to disciple. So we keep this distinction clean, what's the written scriptures and what's the oral tradition. That's why you didn't write this stuff down yet. Got written down later. 
So a Jewish disciple was responsible for passing on a body of tradition from his teacher to the next generation. That's discipleship. So a disciple like Matthew, like Simon Peter, he committed his life. That was his life's work, memorizing, preserving, transmitting the teaching and interpretation, explanation, exegesis of his rabbi. Rabbi uh, taught his disciples in the name of his own teacher and his teacher's teacher and his teacher's teacher's teacher, that sort of thing, transmitting generation to generation oral tradition as vast as the sea. This was the method of higher education, of religious education in Judea in the days of Yeshua. And this was the teacher-disciple relationship I've taught you about before. So for that reason, it did not enter into the mind of Simon Peter to write a book. He never, he, what, am I a, write a book? I'm a fisherman. I don't write books. You know, the disciples don't write books. We're not writers. We're teachers. We're disciples. We're not writers. What do we write? People who write books, they're like those Greeks in Alexandria, those Greek Jews in Alexandria, they write books. It's fiction. <laughs> the disciples don't write books. Like their contemporaries in greater Judaism, the apostles passed on teachings, tradition, lore, by means of oral transmission. So the stories of Yeshua consisted at that time of a body of anecdotes, tales told and retold. And the, 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 the teachings of Yeshua consisted of a body of sayings, of maxims, aphorisms, repeated, material, memorized, repeated again. As the sages say, the disciple repeats his lesson a hundred times. is not as worthy as the disciple who repeats his lesson 101 times. So Matthew innovates, right? Matthew writes, writes some of the sayings the master down. No stories, no passion narrative, no, no recollection of the crucifixion and, and the resurrection, just the teachings of Yeshua, if scholars are right about this, that it was a sayings gospel. Probably uh, not something that would have been in the hands of the Roman believers either, I don't think. Uh, but if you wanted the stories of Yeshua, you needed to get them from the apostles, the eyewitnesses, orally testifying. They were witnesses. They went out witnessing. That's what witnessing meant at that time. You know, original me, you could go out witnessing. Right? They, weren't, they weren't like passing out tracts, you know, like, hey, you know, you know, Jesus died. You know. <clears throat> it was like, no, let me tell you what I saw. <laughs> I was there. That's so that's what Simon Peter was doing in Rome. That's what he was doing in Rome after the fall of Simon Magus. Paul was already gone off into the west, sort of. Sort of the end of the sunset there off to Spain. Simon Peter was in Rome teaching the Roman Christians. How did he do that? I mean, teach the Roman Christians. Did he speak in Greek? Or Latin? Because those were the languages of the city of Rome. Greek and Latin. Probably not very well. Did he just speak in tongues? Uh, I don't know. Maybe once in a while. If necessary, you know, you didn't like to show off. I think if he spoke Greek and Latin, it was with a pretty thick Aramaic accent. And even his Aramaic, we know from the Bible, had a heavy Galilean accent. So we know this from the story of Peter in the house of Caiaphas, right? Where they recognize that you're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. So at the time, he was using John Mark to serve as an interpreter. So John Mark could render Simon Peter's Aramaic and Hebrew into Greek and Latin. 
And this is was common in those days. A sage often worked with an interpreter. Uh, and, and we find this, we find this um, mentioned frequently in the Talmud. So the teacher would, the teacher would, the teacher would kind of, he would just sort of like speak softly uh, what his thought was, and then the interpreter would take the whole thought and deliver a paragraph, you know. And then the teacher would, that gave the teacher time to think what his next thought was. Then he would, he would speak softly to the interpreter. So the, I actually had this opportunity when I was in Kenya, you know. I'd be like, say something, you know, say something. And then the Kenyan interpreter, who had much more charisma and personality than me, <laughs> would be like, he'd be like, whoa, you know, and I'd be like, whoa, I said that, you know. Um, anyway, uh, so, so this is what Peter had going. So John Mark could, could, could render it in local, and the disciples in Rome were delighted to hear these stories and these first-hand stories of the Master. They're thrilled to hear this eyewitness testimony. I'll read you something from Clement of Alexandria as he tells the story. Clement of Alexandria says, <clears throat> This is the splendor of godliness so greatly enlightened the minds of those who heard Peter's teachings that they were not satisfied with hearing only once. They were not content with the oral teaching of the divine gospel. With all sorts of entreaties, they begged Mark, a follower of Peter, and the one whose gospel is extant, that he leave them a written monument of the teaching, which had been orally presented to them. Nor did they cease to ask until they convinced the man. This was the occasion of the written gospel, which bears the name Mark. So they prevailed upon John Mark and they begged him to compile a written transcript of Peter's stories and the sayings of the Master. Mark consented to do so, but he did not ask permission. Which is kind of an interesting part of the story. He didn't ask for Peter's permission before he did this. Why? And he doesn't say, we don't know why. But I think the reason why is that he knew that Simon Peter would never have given him permission to do so. Because in those days, as I said, sages don't write books. You know, you, you don't, the disciples don't write books or create documents of their, of their teachings. So I'll take you to another early church writer, Papias, the second century bishop of Hierapolis, and a hearer, if not a disciple, of the Apostle John, also told this story about the composition of Mark's gospel in Rome. Uh, he, he also told this story. Uh, this way he said, Mark, who had been Peter's interpreter, wrote down carefully, but not in order, all that he remembered of the Master's sayings and doings. For he had not heard the Master, John Mark, had not heard the Master or been one of his followers. But later, as I said, he was one of Peter's disciples. Peter used to adapt his teaching to the occasion without making systematic arrangement of the Master's sayings, so that Mark was quite justified in writing down some things just as he remembered them. For he had only one purpose, to leave out nothing that he had heard and to make no misstatement about it. So he says that Mark wrote down everything he had heard Peter say without embellishing and without rearranging the material. Papias, Papias implies that the mark and ordering of events 
is not a systematic arrangement. Instead, Mark simply recorded it as he remembered it. And this is, uh, adds light to what Luke says at the beginning of his gospel. He says, many have tried to, co- to create an orderly account uh, of, of the... Uh, <laughs> Critics and cynics, of course, there are many doubt that Mark's gospel came about that way. But the prestigious New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, uh, who is a hero of mine, vigorously defends the Gospel of Mark as an authentic record of Peter's own recollections of the Gospel traditions. So the Gospel of Mark could be titled, if you wanted, it might be better titled, The Gospel of Peter. And this explains why the second century, you know, Justin Martyr in the second century refers to the Gospels as the memoirs of the apostles. They didn't, the, the name Gospels had not been invented yet and attached to these documents. They were originally just called the memoirs of the apostles. So as a disciple of Simon Peter, Mark had memorized the oral gospel tradition that Peter taught. And when the disciples in Rome asked him to write it down, he only needed to translate it into Greek and then hand the scroll over to them. So he writes in a ragged, inarticulate form of Greek. The style and voice uh, recalled the sparse, bare-bones narrative style of biblical writing and, and rabbinic teaching. Mark's no historian. He's not an author. He's not a writer. He's, he's not a speaker, even. And Greek is not his first language. And, and the Gospel of Mark reads Hebraically. <laughs> as if it is a hyper-literal translation of a Hebrew original. Semitisms and Hebraic idioms clutter the text. And they, they, these things may have made you know, some sense to Jewish readers, but they were surely lost on Greek-speaking Gentiles in Rome. This was no work of art. And it did not begin to compare with the literature of the sophisticated, highly educated classical world. And if you doubt me, I just, I would encourage you to do some reading. Read some literature from ancient Rome. Go get some Virgil. Uh, you know, maybe read some Homer or something like that. You know, I, I don't know, maybe even, um, you know, just try, try, try yourself on a few chapters of Josephus, for example. And you will see that we are illiterate. We are illiterate by the standards of first century uh, of, of the first century classical world. Anyway, so here comes the Gospel of Mark, and despite all these weaknesses, the Gospel of Mark went viral by ancient standards, it's, which means scribes begin to copy it and copy it and copy it and disseminate it all over. Every believing community that heard about it wanted one wanted a copy for themselves. So what did Peter think of this newfangled written version of an apostle? <laughs> you know what he's thinking? He's thinking of the same guys the Ford plant are thinking when they bring in robots. <laughs> hey, I'm out of a job. This thing <laughs> I'm being replaced here. When Simon Peter heard about it, he felt ambivalent about the concept of a written gospel. It wasn't the first time it had been done, like I said, Matthew had written out the sayings, but this is different. Some say that Thomas was already circulating some of the sayings of the Master as well. I don't know. Uh, uh, but, but this was more than just a collection, a collection of sayings. Here's, here's how Clement tells the story. He says, as Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had followed him for a long time, remembered his saying, should write them out. And after composing the gospel, Mark gave it to those who requested it. And when Peter learned of this, he neither directly forbade 
nor encouraged it. I think Simon Peter might have wondered what role a written version of the testimony might play. He was not entirely certain that Mark had done the right thing. I mean, hadn't the master sent the apostles out to testify and to bear witness? He neither directly forbade, but he didn't encourage it. Eusebius brings another tradition uh, where, where he, he's reconciled to it. He, it says, uh, according to Eusebius, who's writing in the 4th century, says um, he eventually endorses it. He says, he was pleased with the zeal of the men, and the work obtained the sanction of his authority for public reading. So, that's the origin of the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark is the origin of our canonical Gospel of Matthew as well. I don't mean I don't mean Matthew the sayings gospel. I was just I mean Matthew in your Bible. Take Matthew in your Bible. The guy who wrote Matthew in your Bible, maybe his name was Matthew. He sits down and he has in front of him a copy of the Gospel of Mark, and he has other traditions that he personally knows and another source document uh, as well, and maybe something else. And he puts these things together and he writes, but he's got Mark as his foundation. That's his baseline. Luke. Luke says, I, brought, I got a lot of documents and traditions, and I'm putting them together. Luke explains his process right in the front, right, right in the, the first verses of Luke. He says, so other people have done this before. I compiled everything. I've, one of the documents Luke has is the Gospel of Mark. This is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke sound so similar, because they, they share a common base text. And that is the Gospel of Mark. That's why we call them synoptic. You hear me say synoptic Gospels. Syn means um, same, like synchronized. Optic, like the optic nerve. To see, seen the same. Synoptic, the seen the same Gospels. Because they're seen from the same perspective, which is the dominant perspective. The dominant perspective coming from Mark. And Mark gets it from who but Simon Peter. So actually Simon Peter's eyewitness testimony is informing all three of our synoptic gospels. John comes much later, a generation later. But Simon Peter's voice is behind Mark. And Mark is behind Matthew and Luke. And this helps explain something in the gospel. It helps explain Matthew's words. I mean, uh, in the Master's words in, in the book of Matthew. It helps explain the Master's words to Simon Peter when he says, I say to you, you are rock. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my community. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of Peter. I'm suggesting to you, you've had it all along, right under your nose. It's called the Gospel of Mark, but it's Peter's words, Mark's pen. And today on the yard site of the tzaddik, Simon Peter, you know, we're keeping the Holy Sabbath. We're studying in his honor, in, in, in honor of, of his teacher and our teacher, the holy and righteous son of the Most High, Yeshua of Nazareth. And how blessed, ashray, how blessed are our eyes, how blessed are our ears, that thanks to this amazing gospel, thanks to this amazing thing we call the Bible, our eyes have the privilege of seeing what many prophets and holy men 
and kings and prophets longed to see but did not see. And our ears, we can hear the master's words, what the prophets and Sadiqim of ages past longed to hear but did not hear. And it brings us this good news, this gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And we are blessed beyond measure. This is a treasure. This is the gospel I'm talking about. The keys to the kingdom. Peter said, to whom shall we go? With you are the words of eternal life. Our master's very words. The words of eternal life like a precious pearl. To what can it be compared? It can be compared to a treasure that was buried in a field. A man found the treasure. What did he do? He went home. He sold everything he had in order to buy that field. And then he went and purchased the field so that he could have the, you know, the parable. But do we take this treasure seriously? And if Simon Peter was here today, what would he think? I think he would be dismayed at the disciples of Jesus today. Uh, he would be like, you know, this is what I was afraid of. <laughs> this is why I didn't want it written down in the first place. <laughs> it's written down. Why bother learning it? You got it in the, he's got it in the book. You know, you just read the book. Why bother learning it? Well, you know, maybe we should take that to heart. Make it our goal. Make Peter proud of us. You know, I used to memorize passages of Gospels. You know, when I was back in the days when I painted apartments, I'd just take on a whole chapter. Just like all day. Just like painting an apartment. Just, I'm going to just memorize. Just memorize. You know, we used to require our bar mitzvah kids before you could get up and read at the Torah and show off that you could know Hebrew, you had to know the Sermon on the Mount. Kids had to say Matthew 5 through 7. We don't require any, you know, anything like this anymore. We got lazy. It's not that the kids got lazy. We got lazy. But, um, you know, I, I know, I remember my sons, you know, and Justin Johnson, he had that initiative. Like, you memorize the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I'll give you uh, a hamash. You know, it's like a nice, a nice uh, Bible. You know, they could earn that. You know, so, so um, it's a great discipline. Memorization. Good for the mind, too. Keeps, keeps, keeps Alzheimer's away, they say. You, yeah. Yeah, dementia. Keeps dementia away. The more you memorize. Keeps, it's like working out. You know, those muscles. Brain muscles. Takes the words of Yeshua inside. Inside of you. Writes them on the tablet of your heart. So, yeah. What would Simon Peter say if he was here today? Would he be impressed that we have all these prints? I don't think so. I think... He'd be impressed that we would know the words of the Master, that we could speak the words of Yeshua, that we could tell the stories of Yeshua without reading them from a book. I think that's what would impress him. Let's close with some words of Simon Peter. If you could turn to 2 Peter, the epistle of 2 Peter. You know, 2 Peter. It's written... By my reckoning, only a few months, less than a year, before the fire of Rome and the Neronian persecution. And he predicts, he, he, in Second Peter, he tells, he, tells, he tells his readers back in Pontus, where Priscilla and Aquila are from, he tells them, the masters appeared to him and told him his time is short. But he writes here in verse 12. It says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right. As long as I am in this body, in, in this sukkah, in this temporary shelter, 
to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ, made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Master, Yeshua, the Messiah. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul